Welcome to Sup Babe. Welcome to Sub Babe, your one-stop shop for stories, trends, and PSAs so you can live your best life. I'm your host, DJ Rosé, but you can call me Nicole. I'm a serial entrepreneur, fashion lover, and music addict. I'm like Cher from Clueless, but with a little more brains and a little less blonde. Today on the show, we have a mini episode that's very special for you with one of my friends who happens to be a criminal justice and police reform expert. So everybody, please welcome David Jeffries to Sup Babe. How are you doing, Mr. Jeffries? Good afternoon, Nicole. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'll just give a little bit of background on you. David Jeffries is an African-American criminal defense attorney and former prosecutor and an all-around badass who is dating one of my very closest, dearest, best friends, Lauren. Um, David and I have spent many a nights out together, including New Year's Eve a couple years ago, right? Absolutely. The best ever. <laughs> that, was a, that was a fun party. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It's when I made a mental note to always have a world-class celebrity DJ in the group. You can't go <laughs> wrong when you have that. Everything works out. Thank you. I'm so honored. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, totally. No, that was, that was a really great night. And just like, we had the best crew of people and... I'm so grateful that you would come on and talk to me and the Sup Babe squad because I think it's just so important right now to remind everybody that like black people and white people are best fucking friends. We've been friends for a long time. Like we're here to support each other throughout this. You know, Nicole, I mean, you've touched on it when you talked about the fact that we hung out on New Year's Eve. But beyond that, there's just a natural flow that I think everybody experiences and has in their day-to-day life. But when you have situations that are playing out in the news today, it makes it a bit difficult to remember just how seamlessly we can all work together in entertainment, in fun, at work. And it makes it difficult for people to remember the things that bond us, the things that keep us moving forward in the same direction. So it's an important thing to reemphasize whenever we get the chance. Totally, totally agree with you. I love that. Also, I just wanted to point out, it's like cracking me up that you're wearing like a beautiful full suit right now and that I am in a tie-dye t-shirt and like my aviator glasses. It was a last minute like throw on to look a little bit smarter for you. Well, you know what? I think that we're both in our everyday attire to a degree, but I am envious. You look a lot more comfortable. (laughs) A lot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've just like, you know, now that I don't really leave my house, I've forgone wearing any, you know, a type of appropriate clothing, if you will. So, David, I want to get into a little bit more about you. So would you mind just telling our listeners, just give like a couple more sentences on what you do and why you're a badass? Sure. I love it. And I also love getting promoted to different things every time I get a chance to speak. So I'll take the badass and run with it. Um, (laughs) I think that it's important to go through how I got to this point. I'm a former district attorney. I was a district attorney in Queens County for 11 years. I was drawn to the job because I've always felt a... uh, I've drawn to the job because I've always felt a need to fill the role of a protector 
um, a bit of a crusader. And in both respects, I found that moving into the job as a district attorney was something that allowed me to make a change in people's lives on an everyday basis. Now that I'm a defense attorney, I take the things that I've learned, I take the desire that I had to make the change, and I do it on a much more granular level. So it's a direct application of justice in my particular field on a daily basis to the people that come to me for help. And it's something that I truly love and enjoy. I love that. That's beautiful. So, okay, just to break it down for everybody. So previously, you spent 11 years being on the inside, right? Like prosecuting criminals. So now you're on the outside. You know how to get people off, especially people who maybe didn't do the crimes they're being accused of. That's really what it comes down to, Nicole. And thanks for highlighting that particular aspect. There was and there is a lot of conflict in the communities that we work within, that we live within, with respect to the role of prosecutors. I decided that I wanted to be a prosecutor when I was young because I had family influence. My mother was a prosecutor. I knew that that was a job where the good guys were supposed to go in and take care of people that were hurt. They were supposed to protect people. They were supposed to make things better. It was a relatively simplistic view, but it's what I carried with me on my journey towards adulthood. When I got into the job and I got a chance to really work on the things that mattered to me and a chance to really take action with respect to things that were happening in communities I was familiar with, I realized that there were various shades along the spectrum of doing justice. And there was a certain amount of conflict that I had to deal with in terms of whether or not I was in the best format, in the best form to do the type of things that I thought were necessary to bring justice to the people that I've grown up around and the people that I know. And it was a rather a very easy switch for me to move from the role of a prosecutor to that of a defense attorney, because I always felt that justice had a very secure and firm place on both sides of the aisle. Cool. I love that. David, where did you grow up to, just to give a little... Uh, background on you? Because I know you said your mom's a prosecutor. That's amazing. It's nice that you were able to kind of learn, you know, from having an example in the family. But where did you guys grow up? We grew up in Queens. We grew up in Queens. Oh, okay. Great. That makes so much more sense. So quickly, you know, not to detract from our conversation on reform, but did you see Just Mercy? I did. I did. Right. So my in my head when I was watching that, I'm thinking, oh, my God, David is like Michael B. Jordan. Right. I'll take it. I would love I, I aspire <laughs> to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he gave a great performance. What did you think of the show? He gave a great performance and I was moved on a lot of levels. Brian Stevenson has done things that most people can only aspire to um, in their career. He had an opportunity and he took advantage of a void in Alabama. He went right after law school and dedicated his life to serving the underprivileged, dedicated his life to providing justice to people who were being overlooked. And Nicole, a lot of the things that he dealt with then that were prevalent in the 1980s are prevalent and are still a very big part of the legal system now. The major focus of that movie was someone being unjustly accused of a crime that they did not commit. And the thing that sticks out and the thing that the movie is built on is the fact that all of the pieces of the puzzle that showed that he was innocent were available from the very beginning. People just right. failed to look. 
It's a scary thing. Which is so upsetting. It's upsetting. It's disgusting. And it's the kind of thing that can continue to happen if we aren't vigilant in our roles. I love that. And so just for everybody listening, if you haven't seen Just Mercy yet, that's not a spoiler at all. Great overview, David. Um, And Brian Stevenson is played by Michael B. Jordan. So that's kind of the comparison that I made between David. I think I'm a little taller than him, but aside from that. (laughs) You're a little taller and maybe just a little better looking. I'll take it. So to get into it with you a little bit today, I was curious if you could tell us about what criminal justice reforms you've seen this year in New York and, you know, if you think there'll be any reforms on police brutality that we can expect given the current state of affairs. Sure. So this year was actually a really big year with respect to criminal justice reform. If there had not been the attention that was shifted by virtue of the pandemic and by virtue of the unrest within the country uh, pertaining to the unarmed killing of black men, then the reforms that went into place on January 1st, 2020 would most certainly have been the trending topic within the world of criminal reform and within the world of criminal justice. Those reforms consisted of bail reform, long sought after bail reform, which creates two distinct categories, qualifying offenses, and non-qualifying offenses. Qualifying offenses are essentially violent felony offenses, okay? So murder, rape, uh, domestic violence cases where someone violates an order of protection and goes and attacks Mm -hmm. someone that they were in an intimate relationship with. Those things are criminal offenses wherein someone can still have bail placed on them. Right. Like I noticed they placed a $125 million bail on the police officer who was arrested for George Floyd's murder. Right. Right. $1.25 million. Right. $1.25 million. And so, you know, bail is supposed to be put in place to make sure that people return to court, to make sure they answer for the charges that they're being accused of. But historically, bail has been used on disenfranchised and lower income individuals and has created a sort of pretrial detention. It's created a situation in which people can't afford bail that's set usually and consistently in nonviolent minor cases, a lot of misdemeanor offenses, a lot of things where people aren't going to be facing criminal incarceration periods on the other side of the prosecution. Right. So just to break in there and give an example, for instance, if someone was caught smoking a joint walking down the street in New York City, something many, many millions of people have done on a regular basis, maybe not myself, but, you know. So, for instance, if that person was charged and I think that would now be a misdemeanor because it's been decriminalized. You're the lawyer, though, so I don't want to speak. But um, they might have a bail in a case like that, but you're saying that would no longer happen because it's really not necessary to have a bail if it's not, you know, a felony criminal offense. Yeah. Uh, and just to like drill down on that a little bit more. So walking and smoking marijuana would be a violation now. That's been decriminalized, as you accurately pointed out. Mm-hmm. But with, with respect to the offenses that would qualify for bail, look, if you stole a pack of hot dogs from the local supermarket and you were caught for that, and you'd done that before, and you were someone who you know had a little bit of a lengthy criminal history, they may hit you with $5,000 bail, okay? That may not be a lot for you, but for some people, they would end up sitting in jail for months because they couldn't afford bail and they were waiting for their trial dates. So the fact right. that- and that seems like a really bad use of our tax dollars to keep that person who's not like a threat to someone else's life in jail. 
Like that person could be going out, working, making money legally, and then paying into the tax system rather than sitting there and, you know, rotting away. They can't do anything to benefit society in jail. That is the exact analysis that was brought to bear, uh, Nicole. The fact is, it was a waste of resources, and it's also a perversion of the legal system. There was an ongoing perpetuation of people being in jail and essentially being sentenced to jail before they were convicted of anything and before they pled guilty to anything. So bail reform was a big, big deal. The vast majority of crimes are now, at the outset, people are given uh, their next court date, and there are a variety of other measures that can be instituted to make sure that they come back into court, but bail, cash bail, isn't one of them that's readily available. Well, that sounds like it's a really amazing reform. Thank you so much for explaining that for everybody, too. I wonder if you could humble us, too, with just... I personally know what this means because I've dug very deep the last couple weeks into this, but I think people are still a little bit confused about the term defund the police. Do you think we could go into that a little bit and you'd explain kind of overall just what the strategy is there and what that means? Absolutely. And thanks for bringing that up, Nicole. This is something that I think we have to be sure people understand on a really fundamental level. Defunding the police is not elimination of the police. It's a reallocation of certain portions of state budgets. So it's not saying that we don't want any police around anymore. It is saying that, or rather it's an acknowledgement of the fact that in a lot of ways and in a lot of states, the police are overutilized. They're overutilized and they're brought to bear in situations where there really shouldn't be police involvement. They're undertrained for some of the situations that they're brought into. And the defunding police movement is specific to making sure that the funds that would have gone directly to the police department are sent to other complementary social agencies and aspects. So mental health treatment, community mediation, hospitals, schools, reinvesting in the community to the standpoint that allows for there to be advancement in these areas without having the police as the first and the most direct response to things. So defunding the police, again, does not mean that you don't want the police around. It just means that there is an acknowledgement of the fact that the police aren't there to do everything. The communities, if properly empowered, can do much more on a much better level. It's something that's been taking place in different states, and it's actually something that took place in Los Angeles and in New York to a degree. Uh, These are things that are on the table, and the hope is that the movement can catch forward and persist in a positive fashion. Are there any police reforms in New York that you think have a good chance of passing in light of everything that's happened the past couple months? Yes, actually. Before all of the attention was focused on police reform, it's really important to keep in mind that there were some major steps that were attempted to be instituted on a national level with respect to chokeholds, all right? Hakeem Jeffries, the congressman from New York, actually submitted legislation on a national level. Any relation there? No, there's not. (laughs) There's not, but I've had to answer that question quite a few times. (laughs) And the fact is, he submitted legislation that would have banned the use of chokeholds on a national level, uh, that did not go anywhere. 
All right. Now that chokeholds and restraint of breathing techniques are in the news again, that's something that's been taken up. It's been dusted off. And Senator Gillibrand has actually instituted that type, that same type of legislation uh, in the Senate. That's something that we would hope could gain some traction. But it goes much further. And it's something that resonates on a much more uh, local level than that, Nicole. You know, there are a lot of policies that are being pushed forward on a federal and state level that would go directly to the aspect of police brutality and limiting police brutality, not the least of which are things like making sure that the police, that the records of discipline and that the records of complaints are made available to the people. All right. Right. That was something to me that was personally so shocking to see the officer Derek Chauvin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but who the fuck cares anyway? Um, But so he had so many infractions prior to George Floyd's death. So like, how does that person still retain a job? I mean, at a normal company, it's a three strikes and you're out policy. If it's racism or violence, it's probably a one strike and you're out policy. We might not even pay you severance. And that's, you know, a really scary thing, Nicole, particularly when you think about the role and the power that someone like a police officer has in our everyday lives. It's really quite shocking that there's a first, second, third. I think Chauvin had about 15 chances. Okay, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I'm not saying that every time there is an accusation of police brutality, it it means that the officer did, in fact, commit the offense. But what I am saying is that sometimes where there's smoke, there's fire. And certain times you have to be vigilant and make sure that you remove certain people from certain situations. It probably would have changed things uh, with respect to the George Floyd situation. But that's another aspect of police reform that is really uh, gaining traction. Um, Independent oversight is really important. Right now, uh, the attorney general's office does have the authority to investigate the shootings of unarmed males by the police, but instituting a standalone unit within the attorney general's office that is dedicated to that is something that is on the horizon. There are a lot of different things that are being pulled out and put forth because there's an unprecedented amount of attention on things as they stand right now. And our hope is that some of these actually get moved into law on a federal and on a state level. Thank you so much. I totally appreciate that because I think a lot of us are still wondering, you know, okay, we posted on Blackout Tuesday. We definitely support equality. We showed up for our black friends in the black community. How do we stay involved, right? This is not over because you posted to your Instagram. Even if you posted five times and you made a donation, this is not over. And I think what that comes down to is how do we vote for these positions? And the research that we've done says, you know, most people engage at a federal level. People really don't tend to vote at a local level unless it lines up with the federal elections. But the local positions really help bring about this type of criminal justice reform and police reform. So do you happen to know like when even, you know, for instance, when the next New York election is where we might be voting on people that could have a chance to improve some of the police reforms? Absolutely. It turns out that on June 23rd, there are elections pretty much down the line of power. Okay. It's, of course, going to consist of the presidential primary election, but there are also elections being held on the state levels, on the local levels, uh, with respect to positions that really do take a 
frontline approach and have the direct authority to make the changes that we've been discussing. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was amazing. You have been absolutely fantastic. We're super excited to share this with the Sup Babe squad. And I just like can't wait to get back into the city and go out for drinks with you two, lovebirds. Let's put it on the agenda. It's got to happen. <laughs> we're, we're putting it on the personal agenda. It's, it's, it's done. It's as good as done. It's great seeing you, Nicole. Thank you for the time. Awesome. Oh, and really quickly, David, tell everybody where they can find you. Sure. Uh, you can find me at jeffreeslaw.nyc. That's my website, jeffreeslaw, J-E-F-F-R-I-E-S-L-A-W.nyc. Awesome. Thanks so much. We'll drop that in the show notes for everybody. Uh, We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please make sure to subscribe if you haven't already and hit five stars. You can add us on Instagram at DJ Nicole Rose and at Sup Babe Pod. We hope we brightened your day or taught you a little something. And don't forget to check back in Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays to Sup Babe, your one-stop shop for living your best life. That's all for now.